Are we going to do this? You're going to induce it? What's that mic doing way up there? Oh, oh okay, huh? Uh, good morning. Good Sunday morning to you. Uh, this is Thornville Baptist Church in the pastor's living room uh, for <laughs> the next foreseeable couple weeks. Uh, we welcome you to our service, and our order of service was sent out on the prayer team, uh, so you can find it there in a link to the hymns um, and a link to the scripture that we're going to read today. Uh, let's see. <coughs> Not many announcements. If you would continue to send prayer requests to Andrea, we will uh, put that out on the prayer team as best we can. And I encourage you to uh, also check out the instructions that were found so that we can meet together for prayer meeting. Ties and offerings go to Charlotte. Okay, ties and offerings go directly to Charlotte, and we'll send that out on the prayer team. Our scripture for meditation this morning is John 15, verses 18 through 27. John 15, 18 through 27. Our scripture for this morning is, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. 
besought the Lord. And afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. Thou is thine forth, thy hand and mindful. I walked and thanked not on the stormy sea. Twas not as much that I on thee took as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou art long before my hand, my soul, always thou lovest me. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices stores while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast each of us cries with thankful tongue Lord the same love 
then spread the feast. Parents will the sin. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nation, O oh, our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy church its full that all the joys and rays may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming redemption through his blood, uh, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of grace, God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. May God add his blessing. the band of fear divine which 
which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from guilt and shame and called to holiness. But not for works which we have done or shall ever do. Hath God decree on sinful man salvation to bestow? The glory, Lord, from first to last is due to Thee alone. Unto ourselves we dare not take Rob thee of thy crumb. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man, and grace was given us in him before the world began. shall to have attain, partake on earth the purpose grace, and then with Jesus In our last study, we began a new series entitled The Living Bank and Trust, which will deal primarily with what it means to live by faith, that's the trust part, in the Son of God. From the parable of the talents, we discovered that upon Christ's ascension, he distributed the resources of his estate to his servants as a stewardship or trusteeship for which they were responsible. The wealth was his, the management was theirs. Two of the servants did very well. They put the master's money to work, they earned interest on his holdings. One servant, in fear, that is, no love for the master, buried his talent in the ground where it accumulated zero, nothing. Christ called him wicked and lazy, and in the end he was expelled from the estate and cast into outer darkness. His problem was no faith in the Master. We as the people of Christ are called to a stewardship from God 
which can only be managed by faith in God. This faith we saw is characterized by, number one, loyalty to Christ as our one and only master. Number two, placing the master's interest foremost above our own. Number three, the belief that the master will return so that we want desperately to hear the master's approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. And number four, that true faith in Christ will have something to show him in the day of accounting that proves we have been a contributing member to his kingdom. Well, the wayward servant had none of these traits because instead of faith, he had fear. And instead of love, he despised the master. Luke's account of this same uh, text reads this way, His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. Luke 19, verse 14. So that's what they thought of the master. Well, today I want to look at the deposits, plural, necessary for a person to trust in God. Let's pray as we come. Thank you, Lord, for your word, because it's in your word that we find the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news from God. It's not our uh, thinking. It's not our contriving of anything. It's not our uh, doctrinal uh, manipulations whatsoever. We get our word from the word, and we ask that you will bless and honor Jesus. We gather in his name today, these trying times for our country, we look to you, Lord, to meet with us by your Holy Spirit and to teach us from your word. For your glory and our good, we ask these things. Amen. We're looking to this morning at the necessary deposits. We can look, we're thinking of this theme as a bank and trust type of thing. So we're looking at the deposits that are necessary for trusting God. And the first thing I bring out is that we have a need for deposits. You know, when I was a kid, I used to watch as my parents would go to the bank to withdraw money from their savings account to pay off some large bill or to make a sizable purchase. And I thought, whoa, this is really cool. You go to stand up in front of a desk, you fill out a little piece of paper, you take it to the teller window, and the teller gives you whatever money you wrote down on the paper. How cool is that? I would see my mother uh, at the uh, kitchen table. She would pull out her checkbook. And for the next hour, she would write out amounts of money on each check, one to the electric company, another to the gas company, or to Sears Roebuck or whatever. She would seal them in a separate envelope and mail them off the next morning. I took about all of this that I could stand. And so I, at one time I said, Mom, I can't wait till I grow up. And she looked at me, she said, why is that, Freddie? You know, mom's always at IED or something at the end of your day. It's not Fred, it's Freddie. And they do that to keep us young and to keep us their little boy. Anyway, I said, what, well, when I'm grown up, I get to withdraw money from the bank and write checks for the things that I want. And she just started to laugh so hard, I thought she would break a gut. And then she corrected my naivete by saying, well, Freddie... You have to put money in 
into the bank before you can draw it out of the bank. Say, say what? Are you serious, Mom? Oh, this is not cool at all. What a burst to my dreams to become rich. What kind of system is that? You have to contribute before you can take out. You have to give up before you can withdraw. Who invented banking anyway? I didn't take me very long to figure out. And then the bankers are simply giving back my own money. What kind of a deal is that? Well, it's no deal at all, just a convenience, so I can send paper transfers safely through the mail. Well, the same holds true in the spiritual realm. There is no withdrawal unless there is first a deposit. You can't take from God what he doesn't give. You can't manage what he doesn't deposit. You can't spend what you don't have credited to your account. This makes us very, very beholding to God, doesn't it? It is a position many find very uncomfortable in our self-sufficient, I-don't-need-your-help kind of age. People bristle at the idea that heaven is God's to give instead of theirs to earn. Secondly, we, don't, we are reminded that much of the banking system, what it says is you must put in first and then you may withdraw, but for God to come along and say, you must withdraw only what I put in and only under my enablement, that makes us feel rather helpless, insignificant, and very, very dependent and out of control. But may I say that that is exactly the way God's spiritual bank and trust functions. There is no saving trust in God for sinners unless he grants the enablement. God must deposit what he wants drawn out. Let me suggest two essential spiritual deposits made by God. Firstly, the deposit to self-defecation, uh, the death of self. Before anyone can have saving faith in Christ, they must die to self. Paul said it best when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2, verse 20. It could be argued that as we are born into this world, we come already spiritually dead. I mean, after all, just look at the next chapter here. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. God is stating through his apostle that we were born into this world dead towards God. That is, chapter 2, verse 12, separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world, says Paul. This speaks of the estrangement or hostility that exists between sinners and the sinless one, between the one who always and ever obeyed the law of God and those who are always and ever transgressing God's law. Such hostility towards the holy God and creator makes us his enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 10. And we're enemies as surely as Adam and Eve went from obedient subjects to rebels in defiance of God's will when they switched allegiance to the serpent liar. So there's certainly the truth that as people 
born with Adam's fallen nature, we enter this world spiritually dead towards God. But this is death. This death is not, I say it is not what I'm talking about. God had nothing to do with the death of thy soul. We did that to ourselves by our own sin. For the Bible assures us that the wages of, and it's our sin, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 verse 23. And again, Romans 3.10. There is no one righteous, not even one. So rather, the kind of death that I refer to as a deposit from God is the death that comes to a person who is sick and tired of relying upon his or her own vitality and energy to appease and please God. People do a lot of living while they are dead in trespasses and sins. We have it in our text. Paul says that the Ephesian converts, chapter 2, verse 1, were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So you see, they lived or they functioned as though God were irrelevant to their goals and aspirations of life. They were dead while they lived. Yes, but functioning on their own with no thought of God, no doubts as to their own abilities, no questioning of their own goals, no reliance upon anyone except their own wits to strive for and obtain whatever they deem good and profitable, including heaven. This is certainly living by the ways of the world. But there are no kudos from God when we live like this. God knows that such living is an, an arrogant reliance on self, it's more than that. It's an exaltation and worship of self as wicked as the rebellion of Adam and Eve's transgression when Satan tempted them, saying, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Genesis 3, 4. Ooh, like God. Wow, mortals becoming God. What a prospect that is. But Paul pointed out, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Romans 1, verse 23 and verse 25. It was a big lie that Adam and Eve bought into, and it is the lie that governs our world today. The lie says that you're living just fine without God, or that you can please God in your own power using your own energy and determination and willpower. It's the, I'm okay, you're okay crowd. It's the, it'll all work out in the end, dreamers. It's the, if you think it, you can do it, actualization crowd. And men and women always revert to this idolatry of self, even in attempts to please God. But you cannot please God with a good dose of I'm fine the way I am 
You'll never find God and his peace that way. Salvation will never become the prize of your own positive self-image or thinking. Instead, God must deposit dead to self into your account. You must come to an end as the person you are. You must be crucified with Christ like Paul, which doesn't mean someone's going to nail you to a literal wooden cross, but it does mean that your old sinful habits and ways of doing things on your own and in your own strength and for your own pleasure, that's all has to die. God becomes the master, not you. God is enthroned. The idol God, you, is dethroned. Consider Jesus' words about the seed. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. John 12, verse 24 and following. Now our Lord was addressing the person who lives his life by his own wits and know-how with total disregard for God as his Lord and Master. Such people, such people think that heaven or eternal life is theirs for the winning, and they strive to win by outperforming their contemporaries. Strive hard, strive hard. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. You wonderful you has to fall and die. And as long as you love your sinful life the way it is and hang on to it the way you do, Eternal life will continue to elude you. Why? God did not send His Son Jesus into the world so you could ignore Him and bypass Him as being irrelevant. And the sin is not a rippling pond, but a torrential raging river in our lives. And we need a Savior to rescue us. In a parallel text we read, Then Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, verse 24. Paul explains how being crucified with Christ works on a practical level. He writes, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms, says Paul, because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now, Offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this text from Romans 6, verse 6 and following. So, one deposit God places in your account that enables you to trust God for your salvation is the deposit of death to self. That is, being crucified with Christ to all the ways you thought and lived your life as a person of the world order. We move by God's grace from the used to to the but now, from slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness. And there's no self-made people in heaven, only those that are crucified with Christ. Now I ask the question, who can do this? Who can do this? I mean, are you going to repent of your lifestyle on your own? Are you capable of giving up to death the very person you are? The person you love? The person who is self-confident and independent and self-empowered? Not likely. No, not ever. God deposits contrition and repentance in your bank account that you might draw it out and trust solely in His grace to forgive you and change you. Repentance is not yours to bargain with God. It is not yours to command. It is, as Luke wrote in 11, uh, Acts 11, verse 18, to the amazement, I might say, of the Jewish believers. Here's what he wrote. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Do you see what he's saying? Repentance unto life is a grant. It is a gift from God. And the Jews were amazed at that, that God would even want the Gentiles to repent and be saved. Secondly, not only does God deposit into our souls death to self, that we may trust God, but secondly, in order for faith in God to become a reality, He deposits spiritual life. Here again, death is addressed, but this time 
the death of the soul as we are born as sinners and God-haters in our world, dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1. You ever wonder why some people are convicted by the gospel of Christ? By the account of his coming, his suffering, his dying for sinners? And others who sit in the same auditorium, listen to the same preacher, proclaim the same message, are never convicted of sin at all. How come some hear and repent and trust Christ to forgive them their sins, while others, hearing the same message, remain undisturbed, unconvinced, unmoved, just as indifferent and self-satisfied as when they came in to the service? Well, this is because just as death to self has to be deposited by God into their account before they can repent, so spiritual life has to be deposited before they can believe. So repentance is the gift of God, His deposit. But so is spiritual life that results in faith. Let me read it for you right out of the book. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Faith is God's gift, just like repentance is God's gift. How does God do this? Well, Paul told the church at Corinth, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22. So very clearly we are told here that the Holy Spirit himself is the deposit of God to believers' hearts. Same thing in our text, written to the Ephesian church, verse 13. Calls him the promised Holy Spirit, and verse 14 goes on to say, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Well, what about an unbeliever's heart? If we look at Romans 8, it contrasts the life of an unbeliever with the life of a believer in these words. Those who live, who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, writes Paul, are controlled, not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ. Romans 8, 
verse 5 and following. Isn't that very clear? Let me read it again. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now it is clear here that an unbeliever is characterized by these traits. There's nine traits. Let me read them for you. If you have a piece of paper, you might want to write these down. I'm going to give you nine traits that characterize an unbeliever and nine traits that characterize a believer. Firstly, the nine traits that Paul writes that characterize an unbeliever. One, they're controlled by the sinful nature, verse 9. Two, their desires are sinful, verse 5. Number three, their mind or their thinking is death, verse 6. Why is that? Number seven, their mind is hostile to God. Also, verse 7, they rebel against God's law. Number eight, they cannot submit to God's law. They think they can, but they cannot. Next, they cannot please God because of that. Then they do not belong to Christ, verse 9, says the Apostle. And last of all, they will die in their sin because they will not, by faith, trust in the Savior. So that's nine deadly traits for the unbeliever. In contrast, the believers characterize by these traits, chapter 8, verse 5 and following, and there are also nine. I didn't make this up. It's in the text. Their lives, be it his or her life, is in accord with the Spirit, verse 5. Their minds are set on what that Spirit desires, verse 5. Their mind that is controlled by the Spirit, by the spirit uh, issues in life and peace on their behalf, verse 6. They submit to God's law. The Spirit is in control, verse 9, resulting in righteousness, verse 10, verse 11. The Spirit is a permanent resident. He lives in them, verse 9. They're able to please God, verse 8. They are the Son of God, able to address Him as Father, verse 15. They do what belongs to Christ. And they are co-heirs with him as a brother, verse 17. And finally, they will experience resurrection power for the body and life eternal to come, verse 11, verse 13. What a contrast between the unbeliever and the believer, the person without the Spirit and the person with the Spirit of God. Now, as we look at these two lists, what is the one defining entity that is missing in the unbeliever but is present in the believer? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Or we could say it this way, spiritual life. The absence of the Spirit explains every God-hating and wicked mindset against God in list number one that we read about the unbeliever. And conversely, the presence of the Spirit accounts for every God-honoring, God-pleasing, and righteous behavior we have in list number two. God has nothing to do with producing the behavior of people who are unbelievers 
He has everything to do with producing the behavior of people who are believers. The key question is, how does a person move from list one to list two, from having a mindset and a behavior that hates God to a mindset and behavior that loves God? We're talking night to day here, death to life, foe to friend, enemy of God to the Son of God, antichrist to brother of Christ. These are radical 180 degree turnabouts. Gospel message answers in the words of Jesus to Martha. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John 11, verse 25 and 26. Do you believe? Do you trust? Hebrews 11, verse 6, words it this way. Without faith it is impossible to please God. List 1 of the unbeliever, verse 8, says that he or she cannot please God. Why? He has no saving faith. That's why. What a dilemma. The bridge that crosses the precipice of hell into the land of personal salvation and safety in heaven's side is faith, but the unbeliever has no faith. That is who they are. This is who they trust. What's the solution? Only one. It's the Lord. He words it this way. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. And he went on to say, That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6, verse 63. And God the Father so enables us by depositing his own life-giving spirit into the hearts of his people that they come willingly in the day of his power. What he deposits can then be used. Christ, crucified with Christ, the deposit of death to self through repentance but also alive in Christ, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, who is life-giving and produces the faith to please God by laying hold of Jesus. It's both. We need to repent, which we'll never do on our own. We need to believe, which we will never do on our own. The Holy Spirit must do both. Now, how do we go about trusting Christ from death to life? Well, firstly, God commands all sinners to repent. In Athens, at the city of Athens, Paul admitted that there was a time in human history when, and let me read it for you, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. What ignorance? The ignorance of their idolatry, their self-worship, all of those things which Paul observed. Judgment day was suspended, Paul is saying. But now, he goes on, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17, verse 30. Well, you say, if God commands it, then I can do it. Well, that's the way people think. But you need to watch this. 
because that's a reverting back on that self-reliance, that self-will that is so much a part of the sinful you. God's command to repent is not an appeal to your ability, but to your responsibility. It's right, it's proper, it's required of people who, like Adam and Eve, have rebelled against their Creator and Lord. It's their responsibility to turn away from such rebellion and come back to God. But they can't do it. They cannot do it. Repentance means renouncing sin, giving it up to God, seeking His forgiveness. You'll never do that, though you should do it. You must do it if you're to be saved. And if that were not bad enough, God also commands all who hear the gospel of Christ to believe in Him as Savior. So repent and believe. Jesus taught it this way. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, Romans, or excuse me, John 6, verse 29. We read, the crowd then asked for a miracle to convince them, but Jesus had just fed them the day before, thousands, and so he responded, but as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe, John 6, verse 36. Faith in God isn't in them. They can't do it, no matter how many miracles they see. People have this whole idea that if they could just see a miracle, that would help them believe. No. These people in Jesus' day saw wonderful, stupendous miracles. Didn't change their heart whatsoever. The message Jesus preached contained both commands. It reads, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Yeah, okay. This is Jesus speaking. Repent and believe. Do both. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, verse 15. But it is with all men as it was with the Jews who asked Jesus to tell them outright if he were the Messiah. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, <laughs> but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name Speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. John 10, verse 25 and 26. You know, churchmen today have reversed this truth, saying, Believe and you will become a sheep. But Jesus taught those who are sheep, believe. You see how utterly crippling sin is. It bars the door to heaven so that none may enter and paves the way to hell, pulling all men to perdition. The sinful man, the sinful woman, may be given the gospel and told what is necessary to do to be saved, but they do not want to do it. And what is more, they cannot do it. So how are people saved? Here's how they're saved. God deposits in their heart the repentance unto life, enabling them to seek God's forgiveness, and He deposits the Spirit of life, enabling them to trust Jesus and trust only Him for salvation. It isn't the natural faith that I hear some preachers talk about, about you have faith to sit on a chair that will support your weight. No, this is supernatural. 
nor is it the regret that people experience when they do something wrong. Remorse, no. Rather, these deposits of repentance and saving faith are part of God's estate, which he dispenses to his people. Remember the story of the talents? The wicked servant who buried his master's talent and had given, that had been given him to use? Among your numerous blessings may be the stewardship of saving faith and life-changing repentance. So my question is, what are you going to do with them? You say, well, how shall I know if God has gifted me with these deposits of repentance and faith? The writer of Hebrews says it this way. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Or Paul writes it this way. As, God fellow, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now's the time of God's favor. Now's the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2. So, how do you know if God has deposited into your heart the repentance unto life and the spiritual life to believe, the faith? Here's how you know. You repent and you believe. You act upon those gracious. You don't put it off till tomorrow because today is the day of your salvation. And if it is frightening and seemingly too hard to do, God has promised to hear your prayer of repentance. He has promised to grant you that faith to believe if you come to him. None can trust God for daily living unless God first deposits what you need to draw out. So the message of the gospel is today, today, today. Believe today and praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the gospel that is so humbling to human pride. We think we can save ourselves by repentance and faith because we think the repentance is ours and the faith is ours. I've heard it said by preachers, God has done all that he can do, 99.9% .9 of what needs to be done, but that last 0.1% or whatever, has to be done by you. How silly is that? Dead is dead. If we're dead spiritually, dead people cannot respond to anything spiritual. They can hear the gospel, and yet it will not touch their heart, and it will not change them unless you send your Holy Spirit. It is, as Jesus said, the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who grants repentance and faith. It's the Spirit who draws us, kicking and screaming, I'm sure, to Christ and grants us eyes to see and a heart to believe in the great grace that God has given us in Jesus. Thank you, dear Lord, for coming and willingly sacrificing yourself that you might have a people for your name's sake. Thank you for the gifts of repentance and faith. And draw whom you will today Encourage believers, but save the lost. 
for the glory of the gospel, for the glory of Christ. Amen. I'm sorry this was marked on this time. Very sorry that was about to end this note on this. Is not that I did choose thee, or Lord, that would not be? This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free. Of all thou hast ordained that I should live to thee. Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had us brought me to heavenly glory. Before thee, for thy rich grace I thrill. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must love me first. This hymn writer has it right, and let me repeat just this last part of the last verse there. This knowing, if I love thee, Lord, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Our response is God loving us, taking the initiative, and our response to that by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you sought us out that you drew us by your Holy Spirit and brought us into your kingdom. We wouldn't have loved you. We wouldn't have come to you in any way, shape, or form had you not sent your Holy Spirit as the deposit of your grace into our lives and by the Holy Spirit granted us the repentance to turn away from our sin, but also the faith to trust you. It's not our personal repentance. It's not our personal faith, but these are the gifts of God, and we thank you for them. This is supernatural repentance, supernatural faith. Not the kind of faith that people talk about, oh, I have faith to sit on a chair and it'll all... That's not faith, that's knowledge, because you've sat on a chair a thousand times and you've trusted it to hold your weight. The kind of faith that we're talking about in coming to Christ is supernatural it's casting all of our cares and all of our wants and all of our desires upon Jesus and allowing him, by your grace, to draw us sufficiently into your kingdom. 
We bless thee for that. You sought us out. You granted us the things that we need spiritually to come to you. We pray that we would be humbled by that, but also worshipful because of that. In Christ's name, amen.